I'm going to start recording. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic, and I have some really, really good news for you. Uh, at the end of the sermon, we're going to have pizza for everybody. So uh, if you like pizza, this is, this is your lucky day. You don't have to pay for it. It'll be a compliment to the church. Here's why we're doing that. Uh, you've probably been hearing the announcement over the last few weeks uh, that immediately after the service for one hour, we are going to have a forum on faith and science. So we wanted to wait till we got through the first three chapters of Genesis before we directly grapple with the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room, when you're preaching on what the Bible has to say about the origins of the earth and the origins of humanity, the elephant in the room is evolution. The elephant in the room is theories of science. So uh, I, I have kept saying, as we've been preaching through Genesis, we're going to get to that later. We're going to get to that later. Uh, and I didn't want you to think that we're never going to get to it. The plan was to talk about it directly, head on, when we finish the first three chapters of Genesis. I'm not going to do that in the sermon today, um, but we're going to do that immediately afterwards. So if you can't stay, uh, if you have to, have to run and, and, and get somewhere, I totally understand. We are going to also record um, the forum on faith and science uh, so that uh, if you're not able to stay for that portion, uh, you can listen to it. It'll probably be on the website by Tuesday. Uh, but what we are going to do, because we realize we're going to be keeping everybody late, for those of you who are able to stay, so we're going to provide pizza for you. Um, so about as the service ends, uh, there will be pizza that will arrive at the back, and um, uh, we're not going to be able to offer childcare during the, the forum uh, after the service. So the kids are going to come out. Uh, if you need to, to take your kids, we understand. If you want to leave them here uh, as part of, part of uh, the conversation, that's cool too. There will be enough pizza for them as well. So just grab pizza. I'm going to keep talking and we're going to kind of transition into a conversation about the Bible and science. But what we want to do uh, in the sermon part of this service is we want to try to address from the Bible why this matters. Because like I said, the elephant in the room for the last probably two months as we've been grappling with the first three chapters of Genesis is, well, yeah, but I've heard something different in science class. My college biology class or that high school book I read about geology or something about the Big Bang, like I've, I've seen you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson on PBS. I've seen Bill Nye the Science Guy. So yeah, I want to believe. I want to believe in Adam and Eve and Cain, and Abel, and Noah's flood. I want to believe, but I'm struggling. Because I hear an alternative explanation for everything that is coming from all my science classes, science textbooks, science professors, etc. So in this part of the service, we want to answer the question, why does it matter from the Bible? And then basically, then in the, in the after part, when we're eating pizza... And we're going to provide opportunity for you to ask questions. Hopefully, I'll have some answers. Um, but that's going to be when we're going to be saying, what does it matter scientifically? So this part is about the Bible. Afterwards, we're going to delve a little bit more into matters of science. So creation, why does it matter? Now that we've gotten through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we address this elephant in the room, we might ask ourselves, well, why does it matter? Because... That's what many Christians ask. They say, can't we just, you know, kind of hold these two things in tension and say, well, I'm just going to choose to believe 
that there really wasn't Adam and there really wasn't Eve. And I'm also going to choose to believe um, that evolution is true and that we emerged out of a primordial soup billions of years ago. And I know that's not what Genesis says, but I, I want to I'm just going to try to believe both. Uh, and there are many well-intentioned Christians who adopt that approach. So I'm not here to bash that approach. Uh, if that's what you believe, I can respect that. Okay? One of the things that we talk about here at Mosaic is that unity does not mean uniformity. So we might be united around Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. We can be united around that and disagree over some other issues, like the role of science in the Christian faith. So everything that I'm going to present today, I don't want you to take it as me saying, take it or leave it, this is what you have to believe. I'm going to tell you what I believe, and I'm going to tell you why I think it is solidly rooted in the word of God. And I'm going to challenge you to accept it, regardless of what you might hear from our world and our culture. But if you honestly grapple with the text of scripture and come to a different conclusion than I do, I can live with that. In fact, I respect that. But what is difficult to accept, what is difficult to respect is Christians who say, the Bible is my authority, but I'm not going to grapple with it at all. I'm just going to choose to accept science as my authority on matters of science. I happen to believe that the Bible is authoritative for all of life and that Jesus is Lord over every square inch of life. So why does the issue of creation matter? So what I'm going to do over the next 20 minutes, this is probably going to be a little bit shorter sermon because we're going to go into the pizza and then we're going to go into the, to the forum, um, is I want to address this issue of why creation matters. And we're going to do it without going to Genesis. So this is this sermon in our root series, even though we're going verse by verse from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Genesis 11, this is where we're taking a step back and we're going to go to the New Testament. We're going to look at what Jesus and his followers taught about the book of Genesis. Here's the big idea of uh, the sermon. should have it up here on the screen. Jesus and the apostles believed that Genesis was a true story that should shape our lives. Jesus and the apostles believed that Genesis was a true story that should shape our lives. Now, here's the deal. If Jesus believed something, I should too. Does that seem like a fair analysis, a fair idea? Uh, a Christian, the word simply means follower of, of Jesus, follower of Christ. So all of us who profess Jesus, we claim to follow Jesus. None of us do it perfectly, right? There, every single one of us is flawed, and we have inconsistencies, inconsistencies in our thinking and inconsistencies in our living because we're sinners. But the goal is to follow Jesus as perfectly as we can. And that starts with learning what he thought about something. So when it comes to the matter of creation, my first question is not, well, what does Charles Darwin say? Or what does Neil deGrasse Tyson think? Or what does Bill Nye the Science Guy say on PBS? I'm not saying those voices are irrelevant. No, I, I have studied what they say, and I am interested in their perspective. But that is never my starting point. Why? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. So the prime question for this or any other controversial topic, or really any topic about anything in life, is what does Jesus think? 
Has Jesus addressed the topic? Now, interestingly, Jesus and the apostles really, really, really seem to believe that Genesis was super important. These, this uh, sermon series is covering the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And would you believe that there are 60 references to Genesis 1 through 11 in the New Testament? 60 times Jesus and or the apostles made some reference or some, some allusion to these texts that we've been walking through. These first three, chap- three chapters that we've covered so far or the next eight chapters that we're going to cover for the rest of the summer. Jesus and his apostles took them at face value. And what's more, they didn't just refer to some ancient stories and say, you know, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the flood. No, what they did was they appealed to these stories as history, as true, authentic, real life history. And what's more is they used it as a building block to say, therefore, live like this. You see... They understood that these ancient stories, the oldest stories of humanity, are designed to shape the very way we live. They're not just some quaint fairy tales or myths or fables or legends about some random people named Adam and Eve. No, this is meant to shape our lives. And it can only shape our lives because it comes as the true story of the universe. So I'm going to look at this in three ways, three ways in which Jesus and the apostles believed that Genesis was a true story that could shape our lives. We could probably look at other ideas other than these three, but these are the ones I've chosen to focus on for the sermon. First off, Jesus thought Genesis mattered to our marriages. Jesus thought Genesis mattered to our marriages. Now I realize some of you are married, some of you may be widowed, some of you may be single, some of you may be looking to be married, some of you may have no interest in marriage. And that's okay, I get All of that. And we have the full range, the full spectrum here at Mosaic. But whether you're married or not, you probably have some aspiration or some dream. You might have thought about marriage. You at least have opinions about marriage because you're looking around and you're, you're seeing a lot of marriages all around you. Jesus thought that Genesis mattered to our marriages. How do we know that? In Mark chapter 10, I believe we've got the verses up on the screen. If not, just follow along as I'm reading. There were these Pharisees that came to Jesus. They came to trap him. They came to trick him. So here's what they said. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, well, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, what's going on here? There are these two uh, different schools of thought, two different rabbis. The Jewish leaders had rabbis, and there were two like competing rabbis that were pretty famous in ancient Israel. And they each had a set of followers. And those two different rabbis had two different opinions about when it was acceptable to divorce your wife. You need to understand that the culture in which they were living and that Jesus enters into is a fairly chauvinistic sexist culture. And that was not the way that God had designed Old Testament Israel to operate, but that was the way Israel had emerged in the first century. So what they're arguing about basically is what is the, what is the easiest way I can divorce my wife? 
And the two schools of thought were, well, you can divorce her if she does something really bad, or you can divorce her for just about anything. If she burns the toast, kick her to the curb. That was the approach of one of these two schools of thought. So they're having this argument in Jewish society, and they're like, well, Jesus is the new rabbi on the scene. We'll ask him. See, see which, uh, which rabbi he follows, which, which camp he's in. And Jesus is like, you guys are a pack of fools. Don't you know that this is not the point of marriage? Don't you know that this was not how it was meant to be? He said, what did Moses tell you? And they said, well, Moses, you know, he said, uh, he said we, could, we could write up some divorce papers. And Jesus said, no, he told you to do that because of the hardness of your heart. What is Jesus saying here? He said, Moses knew you were going to do it anyway. So he, he set some guidelines in place, some protections for this woman so that you cannot take advantage of her and you cannot abuse her. Jesus said, but Moses is just kind of like giving in because he knows you're going to sin anyway. But don't you know this was not ever how God designed it to be? God designed your marriages to last. God designed your marriages to be permanent, to be a lifelong representation of the glory of God. Now, Jesus knew better than any of us that we live in a fallen and broken world. So if you're you're here and you've experienced the pain of a broken or failed marriage, please know that I sympathize with you on that. And I'm not meaning to shame you or make you feel like a second-class Christian because you certainly are not. But the standard that Jesus holds up here is a Genesis 2 standard. What verses does he quote here? Does anybody know? The verses I preached on a few weeks ago. You see, what Jesus does in answering a question about when is the proper time to get divorced, Jesus says, oh, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve hold the solution for when we are allowed to get divorced. Adam and Eve answer the questions for us about how we should be married and what is the purpose of marriage and how long our marriage should last. He said, Adam and Eve have the answers. Now, Jesus goes on and he talks about more stuff in this passage. I'm not going to unpack all of it. But the important thing that I want us to understand is that when Jesus is trying to resolve a dispute about marriage and show us how we should live as married individuals, he appeals to Genesis as history. Apparently, Jesus doesn't think that Genesis is a myth, just a nice, cute little bedtime story you read to your toddlers. No, Jesus thought that this was the true story of the world, and as such, it should shape our ethics from A to Z, including, in this passage, our marriages. So Jesus thought that Genesis mattered to marriage. Paul thought that Genesis mattered to our sin and our salvation. This is the second idea here. Paul thought that Genesis mattered to our sin and salvation. I'm going to look at two passages, one in Romans 5 and one in uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul said in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So then as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. 
For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, in these two passages, what Paul does is he constructs a, a theology, if you will, an understanding of sin and of salvation. One of the things, uh, I, I was trying to teach Malia this uh, at lunch. We were reading a little uh, devotional. Um, and it's a, it's a kind of a difficult concept to understand. One of the things that I think Kevin probably touched on in his sermon last week in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve fell, Paul taught that we all fell. When Adam and Eve sinned, I sinned. You sin. Christians call this doctrine the doctrine of original sin. Uh, there's a writer named G.K. Chesterton who said that it's the easiest doctrine of all the Christian doctrines to prove. Because basically the, this doctrine just says that uh, we are born sinners. Nobody has to teach us how to do bad things. We just naturally do it. Any parents in here want to argue with me on that? Or do you think that your kids just grow up and somehow they know how to do bad things? Am I right, Phil? Okay. Phil's like, cosine. Um, G.K. Chesterton said, we don't really even have to argue about it. We just instinctively know that we grow up and want to do bad things. Why? Because of this idea of original sin, this idea that we fell when Adam fell. And that all of his descendants, all of the sons of Adam, are inherently sinful. So I was trying to explain to Malia today. We talk a lot about how sin is bad choices, right? Because that's, that's a terminology a four-year-old can get. It's more than that, but that's kind of what we explain it to her as. But I was trying to take it a little farther at lunch today and say, you know, you're not just a sinner because you make bad choices. You're a sinner because you were born that way. That's really hard for a four-year-old to understand. That's really hard for adults to understand. But that's what Paul declares in Romans 5. His argument goes like this. Adam, he was the only human being. He and his wife, there were no descendants yet, no kids yet. They sinned. They became sinners. Then they started having kids, and they passed their sin on to the entire human race. And so we're all just born with this desperate need. There is evil in the world, and when we look in the mirror, we see the evil is in us. So because Adam fell, we fell. So there's this problem, Paul said. All of the sons and daughters of Adam are under a curse, and they need someone to save. Fortunately, Paul had the solution for that. Well, I mean, God had the solution, but Paul explains it to us in terms of Adam. He says, for as one man brought death, one man brought life. For as one man brought sin, one man brought righteousness. And even in 1 Corinthians, he uses the the terminology, the first Adam and the last Adam. Now that's really significant. Paul states the entire idea of salvation. We, we talk about getting saved and going to heaven when we die and, and not going to hell and all of those sorts of things. And they're all true. But Paul 
has this much bigger perspective, this grander narrative on all of this. He says, the whole reason for this problem is because we are cursed sons and daughters of Adam, but there is a last Adam who has come to defeat the curse, who has come to defeat sin, who has come to abolish death and root out injustice. There is the last Adam who has come to live the perfect life that the first Adam could not live. You see, God tested Adam in the garden and allowed the serpent to come and tempt him. What does the serpent do? He says, take and eat. Adam took and ate. But then there's a parallel in the New Testament when the last Adam comes and he's fasting for 40 days in the desert. He's really hungry. And the serpent comes to him and he says, take and eat. And Jesus says, no. Why? Because the last Adam had to perfectly live a perfect life. There is only one way that Jesus could atone for your sins and my sins. And that is that if he were sinless. Jesus comes and he passes the test. The last Adam passes the test that the first Adam failed. And suddenly, all of the sons and daughters of Adam, all of us who are cursed and under his headship, and therefore on our way to eternal uh, separation from God, suddenly, we have an opportunity for salvation if we are in Christ. If we are in this last Adam. Paul builds an entire theology of salvation upon the idea that Adam and Eve were real people that caused a real problem that required a real Jesus to die a real death and really rise from the dead to save us. So the struggle for many of us, many good and godly sincere Christians, they're grappling with this elephant in the room, this idea of evolution, trying to figure out how to fit science and the Bible together. And so what many good people do, I'm not, I'm not trying to bash them. I respect this view, even though it is not my own. What many people try to do is they're going to they're gonna try to put evolution in Genesis 1 through 3. The, the passages that we've covered so far, they're going to try, to try to bring evolution into it and say, well, yeah, I think, you know, it says Adam and Eve and God made and God did this and God did that. But, but maybe it's all one big allegory. Maybe it's one big, you know, like divine novel. And it's not really like true, true. What's more important is, is, is the what the spiritual blessings are that we get from reading a passage like this. But the problem with that approach, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that approach, but the, the single biggest problem with that approach is that it undercuts the entire reason for why we are here. If you're a Christian, probably most of us are, except for the children who might be old enough to understand, many of us here are followers of Jesus. And we are here because we have been saved from something. But what have we been saved from? If Genesis 1 through 3 is a fable, if it's not history, it's just a cute story you tell your kids before bed, then what in the world have we been saved from and why in the world are we here? It's hot today. We could go do other things with our time. But if I believe that Genesis 1 through 3 is real, it means that I have a real problem. And that I needed a real savior because I really, really had to be saved from something. And now my whole life reorienta reorientates itself 
around this Savior, this one, this last Adam, who has entered the world and passed the test that I, in Adam, failed. You see, Paul didn't think that Adam was a myth. People, people uh, different Bible scholars, they, they struggle to grapple with texts like this. And some, some say, well, you know, that Paul, he doesn't really think that Adam is a real person. But it's pretty clear that he did. Paul built his whole theology of sin and salvation upon the fact that Adam and Eve were real. And that we fell in Adam and that we find life in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. Third thing I want to point out here. Jesus thought that Genesis mattered to our marriages. Paul thought that Genesis mattered to our sin and our salvation. John thought that Genesis mattered to our destiny. Now, there was a reason I started with Jesus. Because he's the most important opinion about anything. But he taught his followers a lot of things. And what we have said at Mosaic is that being a disciple is someone who learns the teachings of Jesus, imitates his behavior, and makes more disciples. The first part of that is learning what Jesus taught. The people in the best position to know what Jesus taught were the apostles. Now, Paul did not hang out with Jesus for three years, but he did meet him in the flesh on the road to Damascus. And he had this special revelation from God, it says, as he was hanging out in Arabia for a period of time. So Jesus and Paul, they hung out. I don't know what that was like, but they hung out. And John the Apostle, the guy who writes the book of Revelation, which I'm about to read some of, they hung out for three or so years. These guys, Paul and John, they would have known exactly what it was that Jesus taught about everything. So here's, here's some uh, verses from the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. John is seeing the future of the children of God. This is our eternal abode. Some people call it heaven. Some people call it paradise. One of the most biblical descriptions of it is the new earth. Because heaven is not a, a place where we've become disembodied spirits and float around on clouds strumming harps and we play the hallelujah chorus forever. That's not what heaven is going to be like. Heaven is a place on earth. God restores this earth and there are cities and cultures and civilization and food and mountains and rivers it's a spectacular paradise. You don't believe me? Read Revelation 21 and 22. Describes heaven as being a place on earth. John said, This angel showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And the middle of the cities, uh, it flowed down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month, the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. This is about at the end of the Bible. There's only maybe 15 or so verses left. And it's really cool because the Bible ends on such a great high note. The perfect resolution that we want from every story, you know, if you watch that romantic comedy, you want the couple to get together at the end. If you, if you watch that action movie, you, you want the, the bad guys to be defeated and the country to be saved or whatever it is. If you watch a, watch a murder mystery, 
You want, you want the whodunit to be solved, right? You want that resolution at the end. And when you read the Bible, that's exactly what we get. Resolution. You get the restoration of the planet. Why? Because Adam and Eve could not thwart the will of God. It's not like, <laughs> it's not like God's like, oh, man, Adam and Eve messed up. What am I going to do now? No. God had a plan. The Bible says that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. Before, before time ever began, Jesus was slain in the mind of God. And then he comes, and God has this plan, and history is marching toward this, and nothing can stop it. We're going to end on the right side of history as Jesus restores the earth, sits upon the throne, abolishes evil, defeats injustice, puts an end to death, wipes away every tear. Sin is banished. And there is this glorious new earth. And on this new earth, there's this thing called the tree of life. Did you notice that? It says that uh, there's this river of the water of life, clear as crystal. It's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And there's this tree of life that's on each side of the river, and it has healing for the nations. So the tree of life is not mentioned much in the Bible, but it's mentioned in the Garden of Eden. It's mentioned in Genesis. When God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he puts a flaming cherubim, a flaming angel, with this, this sword. It sounds so bizarre to us because we've never seen angels. Otherwise, it wouldn't seem bizarre. But there's this angel with this flaming sword, and it's guarding the tree of life. I'm not exactly sure why. The Bible doesn't tell us, so I'm not going to speculate. Okay? But there's this tree of life in the garden. And then there's this tree of life in heaven. And as a result of this tree of life being there, it says the leaves of the tree are for healing the nations. And as a result, there will no longer be any curse. There will no longer be any curse. What is John doing here? He's building his understanding of the future of the human race, the future of the entire world, the future of the universe. He's building it upon Genesis. First off, he draws, he makes reference to this tree of life. Now, I don't know if it's the same one that got, like, transported. Uh, I grew up on Star Trek, so I'm all about transportation. Um, but anyway, whether this, whether this tree of life got transported to heaven or whether God, like, reconstituted it and it's a different one, I don't know. Bible doesn't tell us. Or maybe it is a, it is a, a poetic metaphor. Maybe it's an image. I, I'm not entirely sure when we're, when we're reading Revelation 22. But what we can be certain is that John is trying to make a theological point about how this tree of life provides healing to the nations, and as such, it rolls back what he calls the curse. What is John talking about? Well, when he talks about the curse, and when he talks about the tree of life, he's going back to Genesis 3. In two different ways, he's going back to Genesis 3, because Genesis 3 is where the tree of life was, and Genesis 3 is where the curse started. So John said, hey, I've got great news. The world is going somewhere. I know you're discouraged. You're looking around. Life stinks. You wonder if there's any meaning or purpose to it. But I want you to know that history is going somewhere. And we are going to be on the right side of history. You can be assured. You can be confident. You can have hope. But the point that he's making makes no sense if Genesis is not real. The point he's making about the tree of life, and especially the point he's making about the curse being rolled back, 
makes no sense if there's not really a curse from Genesis 3. Now, like I said, about 60 references to Genesis 1 through 11 in the New Testament. These are some of the most notable examples, but there are certainly others. So Jesus, Paul, John, I could talk about Peter. I'm actually going to talk about him in the, in the forum afterwards. Jesus and his followers, Jesus and the apostles believed that Genesis was a true story that should shape our lives. So the question is, is it shaping our lives? Are we going to let it shape our lives? And I know that many of you have this card, so I want to ask you to take out your card now. Um, hopefully you've got a pen nearby. got a couple of suggested next steps for you. One is that when we, when we grapple with something like this, and I realize this has been a different kind of sermon because I'm, I'm basically making an argument, trying to convince you of the importance of Genesis, particularly the importance of Genesis 1 to 3. So it's a different kind of, of sermon, but what should any sermon do? It should lead us to worship our God. And in particular, since we're talking about creation, since we're talking about our great creator, I want us to respond in worship and adoration and devotion to the one who has made us all. God is a good God. And when, we, when we preached at the very first sermon of this series, we talked about the transcendence of God, that he's totally separate. He's totally other. He's, he's outside the world. He's just mind-bogglingly awesome. I don't even know if that's a word, but he's awesome. That's our God. That's the one that we worship. So maybe you just want to check that box. Say, this week, I just want to give God praise because he is a magnificent creator. Maybe you have questions about faith and science. You're like, I'm finally glad that we're finally getting to the elephant in the room because I have questions. I want to talk about it. Maybe you want to check that box. Uh, and then um, – uh, I would ask that maybe if that's the box you want to check, that you hold on to your card, that you not put it in the offering basket when we pass it. Hold on to your card. If you're able to stay for the forum afterwards, feel free to ask your questions, okay? Because we are going to take questions. I'm not going to front. If I don't know the answer, I'll say it. I don't know the answer, but I'll work on getting it for you, okay? Um, and, um, and then we'll be able to talk about that. And then at the end of that, if you're still... You're like, I still have questions. We haven't answered them all, which is probably going to be very likely. We will not answer all your questions. Uh, so uh, then, then turn that into Kevin, and one of us will follow up with you. That You want to talk to someone about faith and science. The third thing is that maybe we need to put our faith in the last Adam. I don't want to assume that we're all Christians here today. I don't want to assume that we are all rescued sons of Adam. Like I said, Paul built his whole theology of sin and of salvation on the idea that we are sons and daughters of Adam who are in desperate need of a rescuer. That's who Jesus is. The last Adam is our rescuer. Maybe you've been coming to church all your life. Maybe you've been baptized five or six times. Maybe you put money in the offering plate and you're a really good person. Never broken any laws lately. But you're like, I don't really know if Jesus is my rescuer. Jesus didn't come to just provide a moral inspiration for you to be a good person and to do good things. He came because you were drowning. And he jumped into the water to save your life. 
The last Adam came, he resisted that temptation. He refused to take and eat because he knew that in Adam we had taken and eaten. And so then he offers us redemption. It's symbolized in the Last Supper, symbolized every time we take communion. What do we do? We take and eat of the body and the blood of Jesus, the last Adam who has been broken and offered for us. So if you're here and you're, you're not sure, you're like, I really don't know if heaven is my home. I don't know if I'm part of God's kingdom. I don't know if, if I've ever made Jesus my rescuer. I encourage you to check that box. Drop it in the offering plate. I promise you we're not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you in, in the middle of the service. Uh, but me or Kevin or one of the leaders will follow up with you. We'll sit down and have a conversation with you. Help, you. help you wrestle with that. Help you work through that. Because there is no more important question in the universe than whether the last Adam has included you in the group of people that he has saved. And I'm here to tell you, he wants to include you in that number. He wants to include everybody in that number. So, we have a great creator. One who is awesome one who is majestic, one who created us, but then refused to be defeated by our sin and had from the, before the foundation of the world this majestic plan, this beautiful story that has at the center the last Adam who comes to rescue us. I want us to just bow together for prayer. Our band's going to come in a moment and lead us in a final song, but I just want us to give thanks to our creator for everything that he's done. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are 